my name is Jenny Kwong. And I'm Nathan Taylor. Welcome to ArtsLink on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary on Treaty 7 Labs and Métis Region 3. So what do you have for us this month, Nathan? Well, Jenny, this month I'm having a conversation with Bruce Zawalski. He is of the Boreal Wilderness Institute and has written an excellent book called Canadian Wilderness Survival. So I'll be talking to him and sort of picking his brains about some of the things I found interesting about uh, him and his career. To start the year 2022 on ArtsLink, I have invited guests Subliminal Rabbit. They are an electronic music duo based in Calgary made up of Colin Menzies and Julian Ia Felice. Here's my conversation with Subliminal Rabbit. Julian and I collaborated on this album. So the artist's name is Subliminal Rabbit, and the album is Ride or Die. And uh, it's nine songs that play continuously, uh, like uh, one DJ set, and lots of different genres uh, mashed into there. And... Um, The title Ride or Die came from the idea of just, you know, your ride or dies, the people that are there for you through the hard times and and the good times and um, also ride or die. Just the the energy of the songs, I think, is really about the message of, you know, just keeping on going and... Um, to keep pushing through, and I think developing these songs uh, for me kind of gave me a sense of hope for the future and um, a gratefulness for the moment. And uh, the song that uh, we started with, uh, Julian and I, um, that eventually became Falling in Lust, uh, we started about three years ago. Um, And Julian, I don't know if you want to share a bit more about that process. Sure. Yeah, um, that would be great. Thanks, Colin. Actually, uh, Colin and I met uh, in the C Space building when Colin was there at the the Studio C, the art gallery. It was kind of a happenstance uh, um, meetup. But uh, then we sort of said, "Well, it would be kind of great to make a, a song together." I had just started getting into uh, kind of this more electronic side of things myself, so it was really uh, there was like a lot of discovery, learning this kind of thing. Uh, you know, we were finding out a lot about, you know, ourselves, but also the whole process, technically, computers, speakers, things like that. Um, and I would come in every once a, once a week or so into C-Space. We'd have a small little room, uh, and I had just a laptop and a little pair of speakers and a tiny little keyboard. So it was all very uh, on the fly, which was the great thing about all this, uh, all these electronics that we got to use. We could do it anywhere. And yeah, so, and I think, we, yeah. So you started this project three years ago, and how did it come together? Well, that song, uh, Falling in Lust, it actually, after Julian and I, um, I think we, we met and had one writing session and started with the sample of a song by In Excess. Uh, That's right. Called, yeah, called Need You Tonight, and it was just like, okay, there's something there, a vibe, um, like, and why don't we kind of start building off of that? Um, and then it, it just, um, it kind of just became, I guess that was the building process. Hey, Julian, from that, around that sample? From that little sample, yeah, that's right. Just this little almost drum sample thing. Mm-hmm. And then we, it went through, you know, lots of, 
versions because we would meet up, you know, maybe, I don't know, once a month or so. And the song really developed from there. Uh, Julian actually built some beats initially out of, I think it was a TV static. Um, yeah, yeah. There's lots of TV static in there. Mm-hmm. And just, uh, you know, it was a writing process. Um, and the idea, you know, I think we started with, was like that feeling of, you know, driving fast in a car, listening to, you know, through your stereo music pumping and that adrenaline and that excitement of maybe, uh, a new connection and, um, going to see somebody, uh, and just that, that thrill, I guess, um, is, is kind of the the base energy of the song and it just became something that we kept developing and then over the course of the three years um you know when i started putting together songs that i had had on my laptop that i had done even years prior to that um i shared them with julian and he added uh pieces to other songs as well there's a song called slay as well which julian did the drums for and I think didn't you use the Reagan uh, jar of oregano or something for for the shaker or for one of the that's right yes the, I think so it was chicken it, spice yeah was <laughs> and it's just that process of the back and forth and even when we you know were on lockdown uh, we still met up online and just you know what kept the process going I think is that it was fun and it was positive and it was always about you know, trying to figure out the technicalities, but just enjoying the process and supporting each other through that uh, process as well in terms of writing the lyrics and the melodies and the back and forth. I think something I really, you know, take away from this collaboration is is the positive energy that, you know, this music was cooked with. Uh, it was cooked with lots of love and support and for uh, each other's creative processes and expression. And I, I never once felt judged or shut down or, or, you know, that a frustration of a technical aspect would ever be a barrier to creating something great. It always felt like we were going toward a momentum of, you know, creating something that we were both really proud of. All right. Totally. And, and so uh, listening to the album, uh, you do mention, you did mention that you brought different sounds together to um, put together in this album. And so how do you um, make a cohesive album um, as well as trying the different sounds that you've mentioned? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the cohesion, I think, um, just as I was playing around with the like the order of the songs, I don't know. I, I guess cohesion, that's part of that creative process and surrendering to it and, you know, seeing that there is um, a continuity or there are themes that emerge. Um, and, and Julian um, did uh, mixing of the songs. And um, I guess, Julian, you, were, you were, took on kind of more of the technical approach of making sure that each song could play separately, but then continuously as well. Yeah, that was fun. Mm-hmm. And then we had um, other musicians, um, Josh Snowden, um, do some of the other music, some of the guitar 
some of the other percussion and recording. We had uh, Wyatt Pavlik do the mastering. And then, yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting question around cohesion of any project. Um, I guess cohesion to me would be the thing that just drives you to keep going with it and that curiosity to, you know, keep playing with it and keep keep creating until, you know, you feel like it's like if you're cooking a dish and you're putting in the garlic and the onions and it's simmering and at what point do you know that the the meal is ready, I guess that's the cohesion is when it feels it felt like it was put together or assembled in an order that I would enjoy as a listener to put on my headphones or put on at an after party or DJ and that I would enjoy kind of the adventure that, that the order of the songs took me on as a listener. Yeah. And what's uh, a few venues opening up for music? Uh, do you look forward to uh, bringing the music to different places to for a live audience? Yeah, I mean, we had an album launch, which was a lot of fun. And uh, and then, yeah, we DJed at a space called Good Neighbor, a community space um, where people can pay what they can for food or clothing. And, and that was really fun, like learning how to DJ on a proper deck and mixing. Um, I think, you know, it's open. I think it's there's definitely an experience to within the the music um that could translate uh really beautifully to a live experience with with visuals and what would it look like you know when you combine fashion and art and technology and music and dance and you know there's um it's open i guess um in terms of how it could be shared as a live experience all right and I guess uh, I, um, Colin, I've known you for a, a bit of time ever since maybe back when Art Central was still around, that building that has been replaced by a new skyscraper. And so I guess, uh, and so I guess, uh, how has, um, uh, like, what other forms of art have you, like, worked in uh, aside from the music? Uh, well, that the the music has has been a constant. Um, I think I finally realized that if if it was you know recognition or monetary um, like value that kept me going or what I was looking for, I would have stopped a long time ago. I think I realized that the music is is I just love creating and it brings me so much joy. Um, but since then, I um, developed an animated series called Selfies. Um, I've done, yeah, lots of different drawing and projects, animation, murals. Um, Julian and I actually collaborated also on a couple murals um, that you were a part of um, at Central Memorial Park and then um, Beatles um, by Analog Coffee. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've, I've, I really, people I think years ago would say, well, choose one art form and stick to that and keep at it. But I think I have found more meaningful experience in my life by just exploring, you know, whatever type of art form that it feels fun to express myself through. Um, and Julian, I guess you've, um, music has been kind of your, your art practice right yeah it definitely has um but i have definitely been told uh, a similar thing uh just because of i i you know play a few different instruments 
And if there have been people that said, you know, don't spread yourself too thin or, or this or that, I do like to mix it up with the different ways that I make music, you know, be it on the computer or with instruments or in a pop or in a classical setting or all these different things. Um, yeah, I just find that the, the more I go out into some new area of it, the more it informs uh, the rest of it. And I, I feel like that probably must be the same with a lot of artistic endeavors is the more you, I don't know, practice the, the vision, the easier it becomes or the, the less that's in your, in your way. All right. I guess that's it for me for this interview. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation and I w I'm sure we'll have more of it uh, at another time. Thank you again, both of you, for being on the show. Great. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jenny, for the opportunity. All right. Hi, this is Jenny again. That was my conversation with Subliminal Rabbit, a music duo in Calgary made up of Colin Menzies and Julian Iafelice. They talked about their new album, Ride or Die. Here's a song from that album called Slay.
That song is called "Slave" from the new album "Ride or Die" by the Calgary music duo Subliminal Rabbit, which you heard early on in the show. Now here is co-host Nathan Taylor. So this month, I'll be speaking to teacher, author, and podcaster Bruce Zawalski of the Boreal Wilderness Institute and author of the excellent book *Canadian Wilderness Survival*. Here we go. Okay, Bruce, could you tell us about the Boreal Wilderness Institute, how long it's been around, and what it does? All right, absolutely. So the Boreal Wilderness Institute is a small outdoor education company located in Edmonton. And uh, for the last 25 years, we've taught modern wilderness survival, a little bit of bushcraft, uh, wilderness navigation, and wildlife awareness. And we teach both to the general public and um, to field workers, i.e. people that work in the uh, in the boreal forest and in the mountains in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, British Columbia, and sometimes into the north. Cool. Now, uh, I'm coming into this interview as someone who is kind of having a resurgence in their interest in bushcraft. And when I was mentioning this to someone I know, they asked, well, what exactly is bushcraft? Could you go over that? Well, I like to think of bushcraft as being taking the science of survival and then going in and using the natural environment even more. So, in other words, if I, if I taught about survival, I would teach you how to light a fire. But when you go into bushcraft, you'd learn first how to light a fire. And then you would look onto that as aspects, like, say, I'd like to learn how to light a fire using a bow drill, or I'd like to use, learn how to um, build a shelter in, with totally natural materials. Okay, so we're talking about just kind of upping your game. Upping the game and maybe changing the game a little bit in terms of if you're stuck somewhere and you're stranded, you can't really cheat. So you can use whatever you have. But if you're looking in a bushcraft scenario, you would want to do that and do it with as much natural materials as you could find or use or function with. like Anything you could bring out of the wilderness to use. Okay, and that is a good dovetail into talking about um, your book, which is the, the reason I, I sought you out to uh, talk to you today. So you have written um, the Canadian Wilderness Survival Stop and Survive book, um, and I think it's great. And so I'd like to get into some details talking about your book and uh, some questions from, so for some of your thoughts. Uh, first off is uh, the wilderness offers no guarantees. I, I like to use that idea that in spite of everything we bring with us and all the skills we have, you walk into a scenario and something could still go wrong. You could lose your gear. The weather could be lousy. Conditions can change. And there is no guarantees. And, you know, the more training you have, the more knowledge you have, the more stuff you bring in, equipment you bring in, the better off you're going to be. But there is still no, in the end, whatever else we do, there is no guarantees that everything is going to turn out really well. or as I like to like describe it in terms of a, a scenario, one of the big things I can't guarantee is that you're going to be all right. And I always think of the worst conditions of food poisoning you ever had. So when you got food poisoning, what did you want to do? Well, generally, you like to curl up in a ball and die. Because when you have a bad case of food poisoning, that's how you feel. Well, now think of it as it being 40 below. And if you curl up in a ball, you may die or you will die. And that's what, those are the kind of things that make a survival situation really hard. It's not when it's really, really good, because when the conditions are really good, literally, 
to me, all it is is a camping trip of limited gear. I like it that you don't use the word lost. Uh, you use the word in your book when trapped. One of the things to think about is that most times that people are actually trapped in the wilderness, they're not actually lost. Like darkness is one of our biggest factors. Can you imagine someone out hiking or hunting or fishing in the fall? I mean, you, we can get, it'll, be, it'll often turn dark by five o'clock. And so if you lose your trail or just simply know that you can't find the trail or follow the trail properly to get back to your vehicle and get home, you're not actually lost. You're just trapped. (laughs) And and that happens a lot with people in vehicle survival where they're trapped in their vehicle mostly because they're trapped in the wilderness. They're not physically trapped in that vehicle, although it's a nice house to hide in, in some cases. It's still functionally that you're trapped because there's no way you're going to walk the 25 or 30 or 40 kilometers out. Another concept that you covered in your book is the idea of stop. Could you talk about that? Well, it's in stop. I mean, it, is a, it, it deals mostly with panic. Panic is a thing that causes a lot of people to get to, 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 to get in trouble in the wilderness and also die in the wilderness. Matter of fact, my mentor, Morris Gorzahansky, often talks about what he called panic-induced exhaustion. And stop is my way and many people's way of turning that around, which is stop, think, orientate, and plan. So stop what you're doing, look around, orientate yourself to the environment. What's actually going to be the problem? Because a lot of times we're responding to things that aren't actually wrong. We're not going to start that for, for 30 or 40 days. So that's not relevant. So look around and what's, well, if it rains tonight, then it's going to get cold. So I'm going to need a shelter and I'm going to need some wood and I'm going to need eventually to light a fire. And I want to, if it's raining, I want to dry myself out so that I sleep well during the night. And that's what you have to do. Orientate yourself to make a plan and then you're fine. And when we deal with stop, we're turning something around or turning something off. And normally that's panic, but that also can be fear. Fear of the wilderness. We're in a culture that is very, very urban now. So being used to the wilderness or being at home in the wilderness is a little harder. I'm speaking with Bruce Zawalski of the Boreal Wilderness Institute and author of the book Canadian Wilderness Survival. Thinking of the car as being a little home, as you mentioned earlier, you offer practical uh, tips in your book about how to, you know, make a personal survival kit or a car survival kit. Um, could I get you to talk about that? And also, uh, I like what you said about the um, the eat more bars. That was something that I never would have considered. Yeah, I, I think there's two things that we could really consider really important in terms of vehicle survival. And in reality, in all survival, which is clothing. Right? So when I talk about that, I have a whole chapter in clothing. When I turn around to vehicle survival, the, the reason I'm talking about clothing first after we talk about physiology and psychology in the book is it's the most important critical item. And when you're in a vehicle, you're not carrying the weight. So you really don't have an excuse not to have it. Yeah. And my book, my telling people is take a duffel bag of gear. You know, take an old sleeping bag along, take along a tube, take along gloves, take along a good jacket. Take along a raincoat. Take along a spare pair of socks so you can change into dry socks. I, uh, I like how you um, use um, case studies in your book. And uh, one of your podcasts, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the interview, um, talks about um, the story of McCandles. Oh, Christopher McCandless. McCandless, yeah. pardon me. Yeah, yeah. No, he's, a, he, he's an interesting individual because of his idea of 
going out to the wilderness. He just really um, took his training in the wrong area. I think that's the fundamental principle rule of what he did was he took his training in the southern United States and then tried to make that work in Alaska and in the north. And it's a different environment. The environment that we get outside of and west of Calgary or Edmonton is a far different environment than the um, southern United States. And that was really where you learn. And I think we learn best by understanding what others do. And that's why I mentioned, I think it's seven or eight different survival scenarios, trying to find good examples of what people did well and what they did poorly and also how they got stranded. Because it's a whole variety of different scenarios that we talk about, I talk about in the book. And some people did really, really well and lived well, and other people suffered a lot because they were not, um, they weren't prepared. Yeah, I think you make mention of uh, some guys that were stranded on an island and basically had to keep the fire going all, like their one thing was to try and keep the fire going because that's all they had. Am I remembering that correctly? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. And, you know, and often for a few days, um, there was, uh, in the 90s, one of those sort of medium-term survival situations, which I sort of go with short-term being one to four days and medium being four to 40 days. And these three kids got uh, kept their... Um, fire going for 23 days Whoa. in late October into early November. And they survived and they survived quite well, but they did it because they could light a fire and build a shelter. And in their case, they also managed to scavenge the Island and find an old pot and a couple of uh, mugs. And therefore they were able to keep hydrated. One of the things we have to think about is that we, as I said, we don't control the environment, but we can control what we bring, what kind of stuff we take in terms of stuff like, you know, bringing a good survival life, most importantly, bringing the means to light fire, dressing properly, bringing clothing that you have to have, and bringing that extra stuff in your vehicle because you have the chance to do it. And then something as simple as something like a headlamp, a couple of eat more so you have a little energy to get you through the first few hours. Because those first few hours are going to be scary because we go from an environment where we have control of everything. You know, in, in a city, we feel like that we have control of everything that happens. And suddenly you're stranded or lost in the wilderness and you don't have that control anymore. And some of that stuff can just be really handy because you feel good. You know, you're back to having a little bit of a snack and you feel nice. And you, your world will become certainly more half full than half empty. There are common misconceptions about some survival equipment. And one of them that you talk about uh, very well in your book is um, what is what exactly is a reflective blanket meant to do and how to use it well? Right, so the reflective blanket is one of these things that's very misunderstood. And, and the reason is that the, um, the only reflection that we get is reflection in the light spectrum. Direct heat doesn't reflect. It, it could be absorbed the way it, a log cabin will absorb heat and then readmit that heat back out. But nothing in terms of a reflective blanket can only reflect something in the light spectrum. And so reflective blankets don't have a lot of use. But one of the things that I know Morse came up with, which is the super shelter, which I talk about a lot in the book, and, you know, spread and, and put like 15 or 20 pictures so you could actually build one. But one of the things it does is that reflective blanket on any kind of shelter, if you have a fire that's big enough and close enough, 
that's as you put the reflective blanket behind you, between basically, so it's you, the fire, then you, and then the reflective blanket, that reflective blanket will reflect the light, but it will also reflect something else, which is more importantly, there is a form of heat in the light spectrum, and that's infrared. And so that infrared heat will reflect back. And a fire like the sun has a large amount of that infrared, and so it'll work. Where it won't work in the reflective blanket is if I put it three or four paces away on the other side of my shelter, as a, as a lot of people talk about reflecting walls, and they don't really work. You can build it as part of your shelter, but that's it. That was my conversation with Bruce Zawalski of the Boreal Wilderness Institute. His book, Canadian Wilderness Survival, can be found at Campers Village if you want a physical copy in Calgary, but you can also check out www.boreal.net to order it online, and do please check out his podcast, the Canadian Outdoor Survival Podcast, which can be found at canadiansurvival.info. I especially suggest uh, checking out the Christopher McCandless episode. It was very interesting. The intro song to the show is from Anita Mui from her song called Fiery Tangle in English and Chi Fall Tom Go in Cantonese. That's it for Earthlink this month. Talk to you folks again next month.